most people don't really think about their ice cube tray unless, of course, they work at OXO. Lua O'Brien is a category director at OXO, and she says the no-spill ice cube tray might just be her favorite product. So the sealed lid means that you're able to kind of put it at a little bit of an angle and it won't drip water anywhere. What's special about the rounded ice cubes is as soon as you crack the tray, all of them become free. It means that you can get every ice cube out of the tray really cleanly, making for just a really awesome experience. OXO solves problems you didn't even know you had. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. Hey, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Stay tuned at the break for their quiz. Hey guys, Bridget here. Now, before we start this week's episode of Proof, I've got a favorite ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description. Now, this is only our second season and we're still learning a lot, so we'd love to get some feedback from you on what you like and what we could do better. All that good stuff. And it only takes a few minutes, I promise. So tell us what you think. Now, on to the show. According to industry standards, there are more than 40,000 Chinese restaurants here in the United States. So let's compare that number to the number of McDonald's in the United States, which is right around 14,000. So if we added in now all the U.S. Wendy's and Burger King restaurants, that brings us up to about 28,000. In order to cross that 40,000 restaurant threshold, we're going to have to add in a whole bunch more, and that includes all of the KFCs, Taco Bells, and Arby's. So all of this is to say that Chinese restaurants are 100% absolutely part of the American landscape. I mean, there were Chinese restaurants here that predate the start of the Civil War. So it was really surprising to me to find out that there was a time when the fate of Chinese restaurants in the U.S. was not so certain. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. My family opened a Chinese restaurant called The Golden Pumpkin in Chicago in the 1920s. This is Monica Eng, a Chicago public radio reporter. It was opened by my great-grandpa, Joe Eng. He came here around the turn of the century, and his place was billed as the largest and most beautiful Chinese cafe in the world, seating for 2,000. It had this huge dance floor and a stage for the house band called Thelma Terry and her Playboys. Thelma also played at this mobster joint called Colosimo's, as in Big Jim Colosimo. So I sort of knew that Chinese restaurants were a different breed back then, but I had no idea just how different. That is until I read about some of these crazy laws folks were pushing around the turn of the century. One was this 1910 Massachusetts law that aimed to ban all white women under 21 from entering Chinese restaurants. If they were older, they'd need a non-Asian male chaperone. And get this, it passed in the Massachusetts House. That seems... Unbelievable. I mean, in today's standards, at least. I know. I was curious, to say the least. So I looked at the work of UC Davis law scholar Jack Chin, because when he first saw this law, he pulled at the thread and unraveled a history of Chinese restaurants in the U.S. that is barely known today, and it's definitely not reported. It reveals this organized effort to wipe out Chinese restaurants altogether. 
I'm sitting here at Sanwa Barbecue Restaurant. It's a popular Chinese spot launched in 1987 in Chicago's third Chinatown. But this whole neighborhood might never have existed if some people had their way a century ago. The place is full of families, couples, and friends eating fried rice, noodle soups, and roast duck. There's a huge birthday party next to us with grandma and toddlers all at the same table. A server helps them celebrate by ringing a gong. Like most Chinese-American joints, this place is packed with families, especially on Mother's Day, Father's Day, and Christmas. And that's largely true across the nation. So how is it that a century ago, Chinese restaurants were seen as so dangerous that they had to be wiped out? Why did people want to obliterate this from the American culinary scene? To understand, it helps to get a picture of Chinese restaurants back then. So a century ago, a lot of chop suey houses had these colorful, ornate dining rooms. Some had curtains and closed booths for privacy. They were seen as these kind of sexy, clandestine spots where diners went for an exotic escape. Think dimly lit, smoke-filled rooms with ragtime music. Some Chinese restaurants were just Chinese restaurants. Plain and simple, straightforward, a diner-type place. Then other Chinese restaurants traded on the perceived exotic nature of Chinese food and Chinatowns. This is Jack Chin. He's a law scholar at UC Davis, and he wrote a paper called The War Against Chinese Restaurants. It highlights the largely unknown effort to get rid of Chinese restaurants at the turn of the century. Some of them would have lurid displays. They would have actors. They would have casts of people who would act out stereotypical Chinese vices. So you would see people smoking opium, that sort of thing, so that people who went to a restaurant like that really felt like they're going somewhere far away. Another kind of thing that went on in Chinese restaurants of this era was a sort of freedom, a escape from the restraint of conventional society, The proprietors of these restaurants were immigrants. They often did not speak perfect English. They were not really connected to the mainstream community in certain ways. They also spawned this craze for something called slumming. So beginning in the 1890s, middle-class and upper-class whites, uh, including white couples, would go slumming in the Chinatowns of the country to see an exotic, wild spectacle. And so this was a common social activity beginning before the 20th century. For some people, it was attractive for the folks who went slumming in Chinatowns, the idea of being associated with a certain naughtiness, with a certain underworld quality was attractive, but It also resulted in some quite serious efforts to restrict Chinese restaurants. What was really scary to some is that these restaurants were also attractive to young women, women who were gaining new freedom and chutzpah in this period. It's around this time that women are asking for the right to vote. Some are working more. And there's this desire to get out and experience small freedoms outside the confines of societal expectations. And they were going sometimes on unchaperoned dates to these places. And as time went on, it was, in some circles, a custom, 
a cool thing to do for a young couple that was courting to have a date at a Chinese restaurant, a chop suey date. And the reason is that when a young couple goes to a chop suey restaurant, they are getting away from ordinary social convention. A restaurant with a Caucasian proprietor, with Caucasian employees, is really directly part of your community. And if you have a drink, if you smoke a cigarette, or worse, if there's hand-holding, kissing, that might get back to your people. But if you go to a Chinese restaurant, you're away from the scrutiny of the community to a significant degree. But there was a dark side as well. Like today, in the early part of the 20th century, the United States was still in the throes of an opioid epidemic. It started in the late 1800s when doctors dispensed opioids for everything from battle injuries to menstrual pain and even toothaches. But by the early 1900s, opium addicts, or what they called hop addicts, were blighting urban areas. And a lot, though certainly not all, of this opium use was happening in urban Chinatowns. And so this true but exaggerated reputation for opium dens, it didn't help. In fact, it fed into this narrative of chop suey restaurants as centers of vice, full of danger and immorality, and it made them a target of, quote, moral concern. More on that later. The more immediate concern about chop suey houses came from the labor unions. Labor unions? What do you mean by that? Well, see, the wage scales for Chinese workers in Chinese restaurants were a lot lower than for workers in white-owned restaurants. Figures show that around 1905, a white cook and a Chinese cook might make 35 bucks a week. But for that money, the Chinese cooked worked longer hours and seven days a week with no day off. So they essentially drove down the price of labor, drove down the operating costs for Chinese restaurants, and then the meal prices. So the white business owners were like, we can't compete here. Well, I can understand that. I mean, it would be difficult to compete on an economic level when you've got Chinese restaurants that are driving down wages. Absolutely. And that's why unions exist, right? To support a decent standard of living for workers. So on its face, I totally get it. But when you start to dig a little deeper, it doesn't look so pretty. See, rather than attempting to unionize the Chinese laborers or lobby the government to approve standards for everyone, the union, it it tries to eliminate the competition. And so what follows is this coordinated attack on chop suey houses that almost wipes them out entirely. Chinese laborers and Asians more broadly were barred from union membership. The Cooks and Waiters Union even excluded workers who had any Asian ancestry. The unions made a decision not to try to organize Asian workers. They generally were all white. Sometimes they would have a black auxiliary local. Sometimes they would let African Americans in, but not to the main local, but to one off to the side. But for the most part, they considered and rejected the idea of bringing Chinese, Japanese workers into the unions. There's an example of this in San Francisco in 1903, where white union laborers boycotted their employers until the San Francisco Hotel and Restaurant Keepers Association agreed to fire all Chinese and Japanese workers. So when the Cooks and Waiters Union, for example, was negotiating with restaurants and bars, they would say uh, that one of the terms of our contract is that you have to fire all the Asians. 
And sometimes employers would agree to that. So they didn't invite them to unionize. They tried to get them fired from other jobs. But then the next steps, Chin says, were restaurant boycotts, telling people to stay out of chop suey joints in solidarity. They said no union member should go to a Chinese restaurant. No person who supports the labor movement should go to a Chinese restaurant. And if boycotts were effective and worked, then maybe these Chinese restaurants would go out of business. The boycott became a national union policy. The AFL, or the American Federation of Labor, is by far the largest and most powerful labor union in the U.S. And they backed these initiatives, which gave the efforts a lot of political power. But that didn't always stop them. But boycotts didn't really work. And the problem was that when a Chinese restaurant is offering a good product at a good price, it's hard to keep people from going to it. And union members would lament, union leaders would lament the fact that notwithstanding the boycott that was in effect, their members would be seen sneaking into Chinese restaurants. And they might be fined when they were caught, but the boycotts didn't really succeed in uh, accomplishing their goal. So boycotts spread throughout the country. Arizona, California, Massachusetts, Nevada, Minnesota, Ohio, Texas, Utah. Phew! And all these more local initiatives to prevent chop suey house ownership spread as well. And believe it or not, it wasn't always so civil. In Tacoma, Chinese laborers were literally evicted from their cities, physically removed from town by prominent citizens. In Idaho and Oregon, workers threatened to hang Chinese laborers if they crossed their paths. As you can probably guess, a lot of restaurants shuttered. But others decided to fight in court. In 1919, Cleveland, Ohio, was home to 20 Chinese restaurants. And unions were picketing two of them, one called the Golden Pheasant and the other the Peacock Inn. The picketers urged other white Americans to, quote, confine their patronage and support to restaurants operated by Americans or white persons. So the Peacock Inn decided to sue. The case was presided over by Judge Foran, a former congressman and member of the Cooper's International Union. So this judge is intimately acquainted with both union and Asian labor matters. And so what was the ruling? Well, the unions lost. The judge said that all men, quote, even including Chinaman residents of the United States, stand equally before the law, unquote. He said that the picketing clearly wasn't an attempt to unionize workers since Asian workers weren't permitted to join the union. And so it was obvious that the union's real aim was to shutter the businesses altogether. And they couldn't do that unless there was a legal reason. His decision stated, If a Chinaman can furnish better food at less cost than a white man, he will be patronized. And I know of no law that will compel or force any patron to pay a higher price for inferior food merely because it is prepared and served by a white man. Wow. I mean, that's a victory. I know, and it's kind of really satisfying to read. And this sentiment it was carried out in courts across the United States, knocking down the union's boycott efforts one by one. But while the Chinese restaurants were winning in court, they were losing in the court of public opinion. More than 300 Chicago white girls have sacrificed themselves to the influence of the chop suey joints during the last year, according to police statistics. Vanity, 
and the desire for showy clothes led to their downfall. It is declared it was accomplished only after they smoked and drank in the chop suey restaurants and permitted themselves to be hypnotized by the dreamy, seductive music that is always on tap. So at the same time that this war on Chinese restaurants is happening, there's a very strict immigration law in place. You've probably heard of it. It's called the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And it says only certain immigrants from China are permitted to immigrate to the United States. Merchants, teachers, officials, etc. And it prevented any Chinese immigrant from becoming a citizen. So the Chinese population in the U.S. at the time is mostly men, laborers who intended on working, then returning home. It's estimated that in 1890, Chinese men outnumbered Chinese women 27 to 1 in the U.S. And this made people nervous about letting white women anywhere near Chinese men. Remember, this is a time for young white women who are at the beginning of women's suffrage, experimenting with living freely. And so many of them are venturing out into Chinatown, maybe on a date or maybe alone for a good time, but mainly as a sort of expression of their newfound freedom. And so in these chop suey houses, you have music, sex, drugs, single women dating interracially. And it caused a real moral conundrum for more conservative white Americans. Here's an excerpt from a 1910 Chicago Tribune investigation of Chinese restaurants. The laws of morality and health, police regulations, and practically all the other protective measures are being violated openly by many chop suey establishments. Young girls with braids down their backs are daily escorted into many of these oriental places by boys wearing their first long trousers and are being introduced to cigarette smoking, drinking, and other evils destined to make them the slave wives of Chinamen or drag them down into lives of more open shame. There are endless publications that sound exactly like this. Beware, your innocent daughters will be lured into chop suey restaurants where they'll drink and smoke opium and and marry Chinese men or be held prisoner in opium dens. Be afraid. Well, I gotta say, it seems much ado about nothing. Yeah, in most cases it was. But as always, it's not always that simple. There was this one case. It was the scandalous murder of Elsie Siegel in 1909. Elsie Siegel was a member of the prominent Siegel family. Her grandfather, Fran Siegel, was a Civil War general. And throughout her life, she had done local missionary work with her mother in and around New York's Chinatown until 1909, when her body was found in a trunk on the top floor of an 8th Avenue apartment. Elsie had become involved with one of her missionary pupils, the owner of a chop suey house. His name was Leon Ling. The police had found love letters signed by Elsie in Ling's apartment after her body was found. The theory is that Ling had discovered Siegel's infatuation with another chop suey house proprietor. Ling's roommate testified that he witnessed Ling murder her through a keyhole in their apartment above the chop suey house. Ling disappeared. Police sent out calls to look for Ling in New York's Chinatown, advising that he may be disguised as a woman. He was never found. I should say, this murder was sensational at the time. It grabbed headlines and was definitely in the public eye. I liken it to the O.J. Simpson trial. Try to remember what it felt like to have the 1994 NBA Finals interrupted by watching a white Bronco driving 45 miles per hour down the highway. Elk Howlings disappeared with O.J. Simpson earlier today, shortly after he had been formally charged with the murder of his wife. 
Now let's go back to Marv Albert in the playoff game, Marv. Thank you, Tom. And that's kind of how this Elsie Siegel trial played out. So even years after that trial, it presented this opportunity for labor unions to capitalize on public fear, on the concern for morality and safety of young women, and to try to legally eliminate Chinese restaurants. So there was never any resolution of the case, and it really focused critical attention on Chinese restaurants, and it gave rise to a movement to regulate them. So the Elsie Siegel murder really is the turning point that leads the unions. Unions had never liked Chinese restaurants, and they had been trying to find ways to deal with Chinese restaurants. But this was a turning point. This was a hook that allowed them to say, see what we've been telling you all this time. Chinese people, Chinese food, is a problem, and it's time to deal with it. After the break, Chinese restaurants face yet another existential threat. It's time for another Bob's Red Mill Grain Quiz, and this week I've got my colleague Erin McMurr in the studio with me. We're going to see how much she knows about flaxseed meal. Erin, are you ready? I am ready. Bring it on, Bridget. (laughs) Flaxseed contains all kinds of healthy stuff, including omega-3 essential fatty acids, which research has shown to have which of the following health benefits? Is it A, reducing the risk of heart disease, B, improving eye health, or C, reducing inflammation? Oh boy, Bridget, this is a tough one. I know that omega-3s are great for your heart, so I'm going to go with A. (laughs) I guess nobody told you, Aaron, but I use all of these quizzes to trick my coworkers. Sorry about that, but the answer was all three. I should have known, Bridget. You were too (laughs) sneaky. (laughs) But you can use flaxseed meal to add a nutritional punch to many baked goods. Just add it to bread, pancakes, muffins, and more for extra nutrition and a nutty flavor. For more information and a ton of delicious recipes, go to bobsredmill.com. Kohler sinks are incredibly functional, hard-wearing, and beautiful. And case in point, the White Haven Cast Iron Kitchen Sink. Now, it doesn't matter if your kitchen's aesthetic is traditional or contemporary, the elegant design of Whitehaven will work in any kitchen. It's got a deep, single-basin sink for easy cleanup, and the enameled cast iron is resistant to chipping or burning. The sink is going to last you for many years, and it's going to look good, too. Whitehaven is available in various sizes and colors, including indigo blue or black plum. And now I'm hungry. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. Sure, everyone knows that sous vide is great for cooking steak and eggs, but it can do so much more. And that's why Chef Steps created the Jewel. I went into the test kitchen to find out what my colleagues do with theirs. This roast beef that we have, we set it to a really low temperature and we let it go overnight. The collagen breaks down, the meat gets super, super tender. Basically prime rib, but a quarter of the price. Polenta grits, normally that's a very hands-on dish. You have to like stir it a lot. Sous vide is pretty cool for it because it's hands-off. I actually have a couple of things in the sous vide bath right now, this very moment as we speak. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code ATK2019 to get $15 off. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code ATK2019.
Before the break, reporter Monica Eng was telling us how the sensational 1909 murder of Elsie Siegel spurred public outrage, and that was aimed at the nation's Chinatowns and chop suey joints. So, Monica, what happens next? Okay, so the unions aren't making much progress trying to boycott Chinese restaurants. Despite all these efforts, they just can't compete on price. Give people a good time for a reasonable price and they'll keep coming. So the unions realize they can sort of exploit this public concern about the influence of chop suey restaurants on young women. And it was heightened in the wake of this Elsie Siegel murder. And so they use it as a Trojan horse to push legislation that this time will surely eliminate the restaurants. And that's where this 1910 Massachusetts legislation comes into play. The one that aims to keep white women out of Chinese restaurants. It was called the, quote, Yellow Peril Bill. Ah, so we're back to that point, because that's the law that pretty much started you right down this whole rabbit hole. Right. So here's Jack Chen talking about how he first stumbled on this legislation and and what it did to his curiosity. So before I started working on this project, as far as I know, nobody really knew about the union effort to eliminate Chinese restaurants from the United States. And the way that I found out about it was over 20 years ago when I was doing a search in a database and I found a 1911 decision from the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court that said that a proposal to keep white women out of Chinese restaurants that had been passed by one house of the Massachusetts legislature would be unconstitutional. But I... It confused me. It puzzled me. Where did this come from? Chinese restaurants are, from the perspective of 2019, very popular. They're in malls. They're in food courts. They're in suburban areas. And everybody seems to like them. Why would there be this concern about Chinese restaurants? And so that was the thread that I started pulling and trying to figure out what could have caused the Massachusetts legislature to seriously consider keeping white women out of Chinese restaurants. And it wasn't just Massachusetts. There were similar laws banning white women or women as a whole from Chinese restaurants in states and cities across the country. I'm talking about Iowa, Montana, Oregon, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, even as far as Saskatchewan, Canada. Women did not yet at that point have the right to vote. So all these efforts in the legislatures were put forth without any input from women, right? That's absolutely right. And a lot of the women, they just kept going to chop suey houses, even though, and sometimes because, they were these places that embodied rebellion. So in many cases, police enforced unlegislated curfews and raids. They arrested swaths of chop suey patrons, especially women, if, get this, they couldn't produce marriage certificates to prove that the men who were with them were their husbands. Jeez, whatever happened to that law? So bottom line, these bills and laws were deemed unconstitutional. One by one, they got struck down in the courts. In the case of the Massachusetts quote-unquote yellow peril bill, that one was supposed to apply to all women under the age of 21. So in a lot of cases, it would have prevented not just white women, but also Chinese women from going to these places with their husbands. And the legislators saw this problem. They were like, yep, that's true, but we're going to press on with the bill anyway. So the Massachusetts House rejected the vote in 1910, but then reintroduced it in 1911. 
Finally, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court was like, if you pass this bill, it will be unconstitutional and void because you're just doing this at Chinese-owned places. You're clearly targeting chop suey houses based on race, and that won't stand. So they withdrew the bill, and that's largely how it played out across the country. The laws just weren't constitutionally viable. So these laws and boycotts to stop Chinese restaurants, in the end, they failed. But in another way, the campaign kind of worked. All of these anti-Chinese efforts, the attempted laws, the boycotts, the immigration restrictions, and the public outcry, they ended up cutting the number of Chinese laborers in the U.S. in half by 1920. And while the union couldn't kill Chinese restaurants, they struck this even bigger blow to Asians in general. Here's Jack again. The political motivation didn't go away. The political impetus to keep America white didn't go away. And so what happened is the American Federation of Labor and other groups who shared this concern did prevail on Congress in 1917 and 1924 to further restrict Asian immigration. And so they did not destroy Chinese restaurants. But in 1917, they extended the Chinese Exclusion Act to all of continental Asia. In 1924, Congress extended the Chinese Exclusion Act to everyone who was ineligible to citizenship in the United States. And because there was a racial restriction on naturalization that primarily fell upon Asians, no Asians after 1924 were allowed to immigrate unless they were in one of the accepted categories, diplomats, merchants, teachers, students, etc. All right, now wait a minute. So they were not able to uphold those laws against Chinese restaurants, uh, but they were able to keep the Chinese immigration restrictions and then even expand them to other Asian people? So if that's the case, how did we end up with so many Chinese restaurants? Well, again, that has to do with these arcane legal maneuvers going on behind the scenes around the 1910s. At the time, they might have seemed like these super tiny and incremental changes, but they ended up having these huge effects on the nation's food. So remember, there was that Chinese Exclusion Act that technically barred all Chinese laborers and only let in teachers, students, diplomats, and merchants. Well, for years, the Chinese and their lawyers had been challenging and chipping away at the language of it using multiple cases. And the question became, what are merchants? And this was a complicated question. There were something like a dozen cases in the U.S. Supreme Court that dealt with the question of who is a merchant exactly, what exactly is a merchant. And one of the things that happened, one of the reasons that Chinese restaurants were important in the Chinese community is that there was this back and forth over the years in the courts and in the immigration bureaucracy about whether Chinese restaurant proprietors were merchants. But ultimately, around 1915, there came a consensus that, yes, if you are the owner or, importantly, a part owner of a Chinese restaurant and you do no manual labor, that was one of the keys, then you're considered a merchant. And if you're a merchant, you can immigrate to the United States, you can bring your children, you can bring your spouse. And so this was a way for Chinese people to get around the Chinese Exclusion Act and come to the United States. 
And so addressing this tiny word in the Chinese Exclusion Act, the word merchants, that opened the floodgates. You had tens of thousands of Chinese restaurateurs applying for entry. And my great-grandpa was one of them. After this 1915 consensus on the word merchant, you saw Chinese restaurants skyrocket around the country. By the 20s, some cities saw Chinese restaurants grow by 8 and even 20 times. But with this provision for restaurateurs came a catch. It almost seemed like it was aimed at the seedy reputation of some of the earlier joints. The restaurants had to be quote-unquote high-grade Chinese restaurants. And the people who applied had to be the bosses, not the workers. And this is rich. Two white people had to vouch for the character of these applicants. So entrepreneurs like my relatives, who had never really been restaurateurs back in Guangdong, where we came from, Suddenly, they took up the restaurant business, and they built some pretty swanky places. You had white tablecloths, art deco decors, and big dance bands. Places like my own family's Golden Pumpkin and Hosai Gai restaurants in Chicago. This was sort of a glamorous place, an elegant place, a restaurant that didn't primarily compete based on price, but competed based on the quality of the experience. And so there were Chinese restaurants that had live music, that had dancing, that had entertainment. But at places like the Forbidden City in San Francisco, at places like Ruby Foo's in New York, these were glamorous joints that people like Ronald Reagan and Bing Crosby and celebrities of the era, politicians, actors, would go to see and be seen, you know? The Studio 54 of the 20s and 30s was a role that some of these Chinese restaurants played. And little by little, public attitude changed toward Chinese restaurants. Unions felt safer from the dangers of low-paid Asian workers, and Chinese restaurants eventually became this integral part of American culture in just about every neighborhood in every small town across the country. Plus, they got really good at adapting to trends and giving local customers what they wanted. At some of my family's restaurants, that meant adopting a tiki vibe with tropical drinks and poo-poo platters. At my grandpa's Hosai Gai, it meant offering a whole American side to the menu. They even had this whole separate American kitchen. That's where my dad and uncle worked summers. They were baking apple pies and Parker rolls every morning to serve up with the fried chicken and steaks, along with the chop suey, of course. Today, that flexibility can mean anything, from adding a sushi bar to keeping bland chop suey on the menu, because that's just what the local customers want. I think Chinese restaurant operators, above all else, wanted to figure out how to have sustainable businesses here in this country, and they adapted. Why Chinese restaurants as opposed to other things? Well, I think part of it has to do with language. Chinese immigrants from China, you know, couldn't do things that required fluency in English, most of them, because they didn't speak English well enough. And they also had to face the employment discrimination at the time. There were lots of jobs that weren't open to them because they weren't citizens and they couldn't naturalize because of their race. There were lots of jobs that even if they were technically open to them, socially weren't open to them. And so Chinese restaurants uh, were sort of a sweet spot, a combination of where the greater society was interested in interacting with Chinese 
and where Chinese people could make a living. So maybe that's the takeaway. You can try your boycotts, you can demonize the race, you can push your laws, and you can try to keep Chinese out of the country. But somehow, through ingenuity, entrepreneurship, and giving the customer what he wants, the Chinese restaurant will always find a way to survive. And survive they have. Back here at Sunwa Restaurant, a second generation has taken over the restaurant from their dad, Eric Chong. They serve hip cocktails and craft beers, along with the roast duck and their dad's special Hong Kong barbecue. Last year, they even picked up a special James Beard Award. And what was the category? American Classics. That's Monica Eng, a reporter at Chicago Public Radio and co-host of The Chewing Podcast. If you want to see some cool images of the Chinese restaurants that Monica's family owned in Chicago, the Golden Pumpkin and Ho Sai Gai, well, we put them up on our website. That's www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Go check it out. And be sure to check out The Chewing Podcast. It's a podcast about food and health, and it's hosted by Louisa Chu and Monica Ng. There you go. It's Chu Ng. Love it. And if you like in-depth, deeply reported stories about food like this one, you're going to want to go give it a listen. And you can get that podcast wherever you're listening right now. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our producer. Associate producer, Caroline Rickard. Scoring sound design and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Editing by Caitlin Kelleher, Sarah Joyner, Jordan Pearson, and Connor Olmsted. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music, additional music by Kyle Forrester. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Jack Bishop is the original fortune cookie and chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Milk, Kohler, Chef Steps, and OXO. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Oh, and one more thing. If you like Proof, well, be sure to subscribe so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, we would love it if you'd leave us a rating or just write us a review wherever you listen. It really helps other people find the show. Now, this is the last episode of season two, but don't you worry. We're working hard on season three as I speak. So be on the lookout for new episodes this fall. And in the meantime, we'll be releasing some bonus content. So be sure to check back.